You're listening to episode 19 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here, we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Thomas Costelli and Brennan Hole here today, and we have an exciting interview with Ben Labovich and Sam Grooms, two experienced multifamily syndicators who just closed on another deal. We're going to talk about multifamily underwriting, syndication, and how they handle their accounting and taxes. But before we do, I want to remind you to check out our knowledge base by navigating to therealestatecpa.com as it will help you find answers to your real estate tax questions. Also, check out our blog for new articles and our YouTube channel for great video content. And if you haven't already, hit that subscribe button on this podcast as we'll be bringing you a new episode once a week. Ben and Sam, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for having us. Thank you much. So, Ben, would you mind telling us a little about your background and how you got started in real estate? Um, well, it's pretty well documented. I've been on a few shows, but you know, it was a, it was a medical condition in my case that needed to be resolved. I couldn't couldn't plan on working for money, so I, it's not like I could become like a CPA, you know, and, and work for money or, or something, you know. <laughs> An honest day's work, you know, that just didn't work for me. It's a medical condition and an excuse. But um, I was also very broke. <laughs> Brandon is laughing. That's right. I'm aiming this at you, my friend. Um, I was also broke. So, it's you know, I couldn't buy cash flow. I couldn't buy dividends. I couldn't buy equity. You need money to buy those things. I didn't have money to buy those things. So I needed to create those things. And so the vehicle that made most sense to me was real estate. And that's basically the, 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 the long and the short of it. But yeah, you know, that multiple sclerosis diagnosis would kick everything off. That's why I stopped being a musician, stopped being a violinist and started being something else. I don't know what I am. I do a lot of things. I'm not sure what I am nowadays, but one of the things I do is invest in real estate. Awesome, awesome. And Sam, how'd you end up getting involved in the real estate game? Um, so I'm a CPA, and my wife and I started. <laughs> <laughs> and you have three CPAs on the line right now. <laughs> I know if this is the time to get tax advice. It's now. <laughs> Many times now. Um, so we, me and my wife started flipping houses, and then a few months after we got married, she she left her career to get her license, her agent's license. And we continued flipping. And we said, if let's just, we, we were doing pretty well. And we decided we wanted to go all in. And we, if we didn't do it now, we weren't going to do it in the future once we had kids. So we jumped all in. And that was about a year and a half ago. And about a year ago, I started investing in multifamily passively. Obviously, there's a lot more tax advantages to that than flipping. And then we wanted to start doing stuff on our own. And that's when I hooked up with Ben and about six months ago. And now we're doing our own deals instead of investing in others. So how did that partnership form? Actually, I was investing in one of Ben's deals. Very nice. 
cool how that works, right? More specifically, every couple needs to have the brain and the good looker. You know, you pick your, you know, make your bed, whichever one of us. But, you know, I have my opinion. I ain't bold. I'm not the one that's bold. You know, I got I got nice going on up oh, here. Man. So I'm not sure which one I am, but you guys take a stab at it. You're welcome. Take a stab at it. This guy here, Sam, I call him walking computer. He is. And you can hear the way he talks. There's like processing going on behind those words. It's like it's like uh, I, I'll call him and I say it would be nice if we had a spreadsheet that did X, Y, Z. Before we get off the freaking phone, he has emailed me a link to a spreadsheet in the drive. It's the most amazing thing I've ever heard. Uh, you know, it's just just a very smart guy. I'm very fortunate and blessed. To, very nice. Yeah, so, so Sam, question for you. you. You started in flips with your wife. Your wife shifted gears towards multifamily. Um, we wanted something that's a little bit more passive, and you're paying income tax on all of that. So we wanted to get a better better return basically on our time and on money and rentals and cash flow is the way to go. We chose multifamily because it just doesn't make sense on the single family market right now. It's really hard to find good cash flow. And then the management side just doesn't make sense either. We wanted someone professional that can manage it for us. And until you get to 75 to 100 units, it's really hard to get that professional level management. So that's when we started investing in other multifamily deals. And that just was a natural progression to start doing our own. Can you explain what that professional level management is? We, we hear a lot of our clients talk about it too. Like up until about 20 units, it's fine managing yourself. And then you get above that and up until about the 90 unit range, like you just kind of mentioned. Right. Uh, it's kind of like a gray area. Like it's not a, a function lot. of payroll, right? It's a function of payroll because when we talk about professional systems in general, we're talking about building systems, systems and processes. And you can't have processes without systems and vice versa. And so really it comes down to, can your property overhead support paying for people. And there is an inefficiency that exists. This is, this is a top line conversation, right? So yeah, if you're renting $2,000 units, you can do it with 60 units uh, without cutting any corners. But by and large, where most of us are in $800 to $1,200, $1,300 per unit, you're really looking at 90 units and up before you start seeing the efficiencies that enable you to underwrite the payroll without having to cut corners. And you have to do payroll in order to get professional people uh, doing things in a professional manner. So that, I think, is really why I left small multifamily and work exclusively in large multifamily now. And why Sam Sam was smart enough, wise enough, I would say, to figure this out without the trial and error of uh, doing this. He just looked at the numbers as a CPA would do and uh, saw that it didn't make sense. Sounds like you're a pretty smart guy, Sam. Is that just like all CPAs are pretty brilliant people, I think? Yeah, <laughs> That's what I'm hearing from Ben. <laughs> yeah, you know, one of, the, one of the questions I had, you know, for you guys both being, you know, uh, I just recently attended one of Ben's events of, um, on underwriting. And, you know, that would be what, I know you, you also coach people on underwriting as well. What, what do you see as, as a most common mistake, you know, investors make while they're underwriting a deal and, you know, something that you guide people to, uh, you know, fix, if you will? You know, it's interesting. We posted that thread on Bigger Pockets, and at one point, somebody asked a similar question, and Sam and I answered in different ways. And then he jumped in and said, "This is this is lovely because this showcases perfectly 
how we come at things from different standpoints. So I am in my training a lot more liberal arts. So I paint pictures and I tell stories and then I boil those down to numbers. I don't start my thought process with numbers. That's a foreign concept to me. I don't see stories in numbers. I see stories in stories in how people behave and how the units behave and how they interact and all of that. And then I'm just, you know, just smart enough to boil those stories into numbers. Well, the biggest mistake I see people making is that you start underwriting numbers and the numbers can be anything you want them to be. I can stack numbers 10,000 ways from here to heaven to make the picture look any way I want because I understand the dynamic of numbers and how it works in real estate. And the danger to me is that I see people underwriting numbers. Let's take a very simple example. Let's talk about capital expense. You know, your windows need replaced, your roof needs replaced, your furnace, this and that and the other. And, or even a more generalized conversation of, do we express things in terms of percentages? I see newbies expressing things in terms of percentages, expense items, both OPEX and CAPEX in terms of percentages. And the danger in that is that those are dollar amounts. So if you take a rental that's a $1,000 rental and you have $1,200 expense for whatever it is, that's a 10% annual expense on an annual income of $12,000, okay? Let's just call that expense a very expensive water heater. Shouldn't cost you $1,200, but let's just say for the ease of conversation, it's a $1,200 water heater. Understand that if the same unit is renting, not for $1,000 a month, but for $2,000 a month, all of a sudden the same water heater that costs you $1,200 becomes a 5% expense instead of a 10% expense. So the biggest mistake I see newbies making is basing the operating expenses and the capital expenditures on as a percentage of some kind of top line revenue hurdle. And they're not, they're dollar amounts. And all of the expenses, most of the expenses, whether you're talking about marketing and advertising, whether you're talking office and administrative, whether you're talking payroll, whether you're talking appliances, whether you, whatever you have, these are all dollar amounts. So you back into what percentage of top line those are, but you can't start with the assumption that they're going to cost you a certain set percentage because the top line is a very vague kind of thing. Unless you are used to buying buildings of same quality, same condition in the same location, and you've arrived at the percentage via trailing data that suggests this is what I routinely pay for this stuff. You can't underwrite that way. And this is what I see people do all the time. Right. And I guess a good example of that would just be a property here in North Carolina. Looks, has the same square footage. Everything is the exact same as a property in New York City. The New York City property is going to command rents that are 10 times higher than that here in North Carolina. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the expenses are also scaling that amount, especially in relation to repairs and CapEx. You can't just tack a percentage on the gross rents received. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. You cannot. And you, you can make certain adjustments that are logical, right? In North Carolina, you have a lot less freezing weather than you do in New York. You do have snow, but you have a lot less snow. So that means your landscaping budget is going to look slightly different than New York, probably less expensive. 
your pipes are going to freeze, but not nearly as much as they would in New York. So therefore, your repair uh, and maintenance budget is going to look slightly different than it will in New York. So you can build those. Again, I'm telling you stories. You know, this is what we're, we're looking at this logically and saying, here's a property in North Carolina. Here's a property in New York. So are the expenses are going to go up in New York? Yes, but not nearly as much as rent. And so the story starts and you start boiling it down to numbers. And that's how you arrive at reasonable conclusions on the property. People don't do that. People, it's one size fit all for everything nowadays. And that's just not, that's not realistic. I like what you said about the CapEx too. So we, as a firm, we offer a small service that we call real estate deal review. And it's really just a gut check. Like we'll have a client that is about to invest in a property, small or large, and they'll send over the pro forma. We'll take a look at it. And 99 times out of 100, CapEx is never anywhere in the documents. It's just not there. It's, we're always like, well, wait a second. What, what happens if your roof goes? Where's the reserve for that? How are you budgeting for that? And then right. when they start budgeting for it, all of a sudden, it looks like a lot worse of a deal. Really well, sure. and that makes for an interesting... And I'm stealing the show because Sam's just sitting there and going like, you know, Ben, you just talk. That's what you do. You just look good and talk, look pretty and talk. And I'm like, okay. Um you know, the CCIM guidelines. And, and at some point, this CapEx conversation gets a little sinister because if we all knew exactly how much it costs to run property, maintain property, and stay with it, nobody would be paying what we're paying for said property. The point is, is that in order to drive the pricing and everything else, we back the CapEx out of the operating expenses. On the one hand, it makes sense, right? You buy a car, you know you're going to have to change tires or you use it. You know you're going to have to do oil changes. If you have a Raptor, you're going to have to spend a lot on both, okay? If you have a Tesla, you'll have to spend nothing on oil changes. But you don't penalize the car. You don't go and say, listen, because I know I'll have to replace my tires, all of a sudden, this car is worthless. No, we have an understanding. As you use it, certain things you're going to have to replace. You're going to have to put money into it. The building is the same way. So on the surface, the logic kind of sticks, like the appraiser logic, the CCIM logic. Let's take the CapEx items and back them out, put them underneath the NOI because we don't want to penalize the building value. We don't want to penalize the uh, NOI with a higher CapEx. On the other side, though, people need to understand these expenses are just as real as anything else. Your blinds may be expensed as a CapEx item by your CPA, and they should be. But every time somebody moves out, you're going to have them. And not accounting for that kind of stuff is uh, is silly hour. And like you said, 99 times out of 100, it's not there. Yeah. So Sam, I want to give you some of the limelight now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> since this is an accounting and tax podcast, talk to us about the accounting and bookkeeping systems that you guys are using and, and what you guys do to stay on top of your financials. So... Again, going back to the professional management, one of the things that using a big company has allowed us to do is they actually handle all of the day-to-day accounting. We work with their financial reporting team and come up with exactly what reports we want, what we want to see, but the day-to-day accounting all happens there. What we also did was we purchased an investor portal so that can link to their accounting system. So it'll pull that in for us, provide our investors with up-to-date accounting and all the metrics. And then we, on the investment side, we have just been using QuickBooks to basically handle our accounting at the investment management level. 
Do you mind sharing what that investor portal was? Uh, it's IMS, Investor Management Services. There's two big ones and they're one of the two and they've been great so far. Really easy to implement and we love using them. So your professional management, are, are we referring to the property management company, like the operators there? Okay. So they are professional enough with their accounting and their financial reporting that you guys don't really have to do any touch up or roll up or anything? Oh, yeah. We have to do touch up. So you, they use Yardie, which is Yardie is one of the probably two or three biggest on-site property management software. And there's a lot of touch up specifically in the beginning because landlords like things to look in specific ways. Different people like different things, right? One of the big learning curves for me was I was looking at a lot of offering memorandums and sometimes you will see repair and maintenance broken down into two categories. One that's basically just, because of course you're paying payroll at that scale, right? So you're not paying you're not paying the plumber to come fix your faucet. All you're buying is the actual faucet, right? And that becomes your repair maintenance parts and materials and things like that, right? So you're seeing that line item, but you're also seeing things like flooring, blinds, light fixtures, you know, light switches, things like that. that are obviously going to be CapEx by the time they come to you guys. They should be CapEx, but in reality, they're just part of day-to-day repair and maintenance budget. So what is interesting is that we have to sit down with them with the PM and tell them how we want it. For our purposes, do we want those light switches inside the UPEX or do we want them back out of the NOI and show up below the line? Of course, when you go to sell the property, you want all of the UPEX be below the line, you know, but those are the kind of conversations that take place to kind of zero in on the reporting. But they have a large manager, like these guys have over 20,000 units under management. So they have their legal department, they have their construction arm, they have reporting arm, they have the, the guys in the CPAs and, and bookkeepers sitting there in the back office doing the books. You know, that's what we mean when we say professional management. So when it comes down to, you know, you guys have them do all your bookkeeping and accounting and stuff, you touch it up with them. Do you, when, at what point do you loop your CPA and do you guys, you know, Sam, I know he's a CPA. Does he do the taxes or you have a professional CPA do the taxes? Sam does absolutely not do the taxes. So we will have an accountant prepare all the K-1s for the investors. And it might be a certain guy named Paul. I don't know. We, <laughs> we still have to figure that part out. We do need to figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> so you have a third party prepare, you know, the tax prep as, you know, I think any syndicator would regardless of whether you're CPA or not. Do you receive tax strategy from a CPA or, or do you guide that? And if you do guide that, you know, what strategies do you use? Well, there's a lot of conversation on things like cost segs and there's no magic to most of what we do in the apartment business, right? In terms of tax strategy. There is some conversation regarding whether to do cost segs or not to do cost segs and, and things of that nature. But I think most syndicators will tell you that keeping money now and worrying about how to shelter it later is probably what most investors will want to do. So things like a cost segregation study and, and things of that nature, the new tax law, Sam and I think really helps us in terms of essentially expensing almost $1.5 million of CapEx in the first year or two. I mean, that's just, that's just losses galore. You know? yeah. Just to expand on that for our listeners. So if you do a cost segregation study in 2018 or beyond, 
you can now take 100% bonus depreciation on any asset or any component within your asset that has a useful life of less than 20 years. So that's land improvements, personal property, carpeting, whatever is in, in the property that you're purchasing. As long as it has a useful life of less than 20 years, you can 100% expense it with a cost segregation study. So it's really important to get that cost seg done in the first year, because if you do the cost seg in the second year, you can't take that 100% bonus depreciation. And we generally see anywhere between 20, 25, or what is it, Thomas, 25 to 30%. Yeah, of the asset purchase price being immediately expensed due to cost seg. Yeah, so we're we're going to have that about twenty five to thirty percent, and then like Ben said, we're also spending a one point four million in the first year in additional capex. So we're going to have a huge deduction. Got it. So that was additional additional capex. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're, we're that's one of the reasons we don't have a cost seg study on the books right now because we're going through and literally. $7,500 inside the unit, another half a million dollars in the exterior. I mean, that's coming out in the next 18 months. And our understanding of the law is that we can expense that essentially in addition to the cost seg bump that we get on the straight line depreciation. So something like this is just a fabulous shelter for a lot of people. Yeah. And, you know, I, I have to imagine that it, since you guys do syndication, that most of your investors are credited. And, you know, if you're an accredited investor, chances are you are in these higher tax brackets, you know, the 35, 37% uh, tax bracket, which of course, you know, depreciation recaptures 25%. So even if you're doing it, you're capturing all this depreciation, you're writing it off and you're paying it back at 25%, but you're saving yourself 12% if you're at that highest tax bracket, 37. So- Well, not, not only that, but interestingly, on a lot of deals that we would buy, there's not a whole lot of cash flow in the first year or two because we're buying it to reposition it. Why? Because it's mismanaged. So the rents are low. So we're not going to see a lot of cash flow. So you're, not, you're carrying all of these losses forward. So when we go ahead and sell in year four or five or seven or whatever- you're only paying 25% to recapture the unsheltered portion that you're not able to shelter. Yeah. Because you still have all of this depreciation yeah. you're carrying forward, you're not using in the first year. How are you guys having conversations with your investors about the 2018 tax law? Like, is anybody asking what are the strategies that we're going to be using here on this property? Or is everybody just kind of turning a blind eye or not asking at all? <laughs> so we actually got quite a few questions and I prepared a lot of estimates for uh, the cost segregation, what it would be and what the estimated passive losses would be by year for the entire hold of the property. With the caveat of we haven't done the cost segregation study yet. And these are all just industry estimates. But yeah, we, we actually got a, we gathered a lot of questions from investors about that. And so finally, we just created a, a PDF that we sent around to each of them. Yeah, you know, uh, one of the major things too is this business interest limitations. Have you guys heard of that yet? Or have you ran into any questions on that from your investors on how, how you guys are specifically going to handle that part of the tax law? I have not. I've heard of it. I have not had to field any answers to any questions as of yet. Yeah. We've been telling our accredited investors that are investing in syndicates to be asking, how are you going to handle the business interest limitations? Because it's not going to be a 2018 issue. I think it's going to be a 2019 issue just like electing out. And that's a different topic, I guess. So in general, let's wrap up the accounting and the bookkeeping stuff. In general, do you recommend that investors immediately try to offload the accounting function? Or do you recommend that they dive in, try to figure it out themselves for a certain amount of time? What are your thoughts there? Well, I mean, for a smaller portfolio for years, I started out using QuickBooks. And then I switched to uh, Buildium. And it's just on larger projects, 
it's not a question of whether you want to do it yourself. It's a question of do your investors actually want you to do it? Because certainly a company with 20,000 units under management has systems set up to handle accounting with more precision probably than, than we could starting from scratch and trying to use our systems or you know whatever. So I think that there is an expectation on syndicators to not be doing this on the back of a napkin. It's just not right. And there has to be a third party kind of barrier because they have fiduciary, we have fiduciary. And, and, and so I think for people putting in hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars, they want to know that all of that exists with the whole third party conceptually, right? So mm-hmm. yes, I would say that at the syndicating level, yeah, I wouldn't be trying to do it yourself. Awesome. Thank you. So switching gears a little bit, let's go to the tax side. What is the greatest tax advice that you feel like you've received to date? And then the follow-up question is, and this both of you and Sam, I'm definitely interested in what you have to say. Follow-up question would be, what is some really bad advice that you, maybe you haven't received it yourself, but you've heard about and you're just kind of like shaking your head like, no way, no way, absolutely not. Sam, you want to take it? Yeah, definitely. So some bad advice. I've actually, on different forums online, a lot of people will tell you it's not worth it to do the cost segregation. And they'll look at the upfront costs and maybe the year one savings and just decide not to do it. And almost every case, you guys can probably attest to this, in almost every case, it's going to be worth it for a large property. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) I would definitely speak with the experts and don't try to figure it out on your own. Go to the professionals and go to someone who's an expert at it and get their help. And that, I mean, that's pretty much everything with taxes related. You want to talk to someone who's an expert at it and don't try to do too much on your own. So no online forum advice. <laughs> that's what we're saying. <laughs> we should this not. is getting good. Can we name names? Can we, can we really say what we're thinking? <laughs> <laughs> that one, okay, that's what I hear. All right, good stuff. So that's bad. <laughs> well, what is some great advice that you guys have received? Either one of you. Somebody told me a long time ago, make your money on Schedule E. That was a great advice. You have all kinds of flexibility, all kinds of control, all kinds of shelters, all kinds of things you can do on Schedule E. So, you know, if you are a high W-2 earner, there's nothing much you can do. But if you are at a crossroads in life and you have a choice in the matter and you can go this way, that way, uh, you know, putting in the time, because everything takes time, right? We all show up and punch the clock in one way or the other. Uh, if you put your time into creating W-2 income, you're going to have tax issues, period. And there won't be very much you can do about it. If you put the same time into building your Schedule E income, whatever shape and form that looks, I don't care how it looks, so as long as it shows up in Schedule E, you are going to find yourself a lot more fluid, a lot more flexible, with a lot more options. The tax code is written for income on Schedule E. Yeah, it's great advice. I think the same thing too can be said just in general about business ownership. If you can move out of the W-2 position, Thomas, don't listen to this. If you can move out of the (laughs) W-2 position (laughs) and into the Schedule C or the Schedule E position, you just get a lot more flexibility in what you can ultimately do and uh, the things that you can really write off. One thing that we talk about with our clients all the time is tech and you know uh, systematizing their processes and stuff. I know uh, Ben had mentioned it before. 
Is there any specific tech that you use or anything, you know, virtual assistants that you use to make your job easier, whether it's finding deals, analyzing deals, or, you know, managing the business? I know you guys do uh, use the investor portal, but anything else? I've used for small projects, I've used uh, virtual assistants, things like that. But, you know, I don't know how you source deals through a virtual assistant or anything other than a personal relationship with people. I don't know how you underwrite a deal. I suppose we could teach somebody to sit here and underwrite our deals. Sam and I are kind of different. And it's interesting in that I'm talking to a lot of passive investors and people are aware that the market is what it is and that people are aware that there's a fair amount of moral hazard in syndication in that you know, you're putting a couple of hundred thousand dollars hard on the table just to get the deal. And if you walk away, you're going to lose it. As a syndicator, you could be viewed as potentially having a moral problem with proceeding with a deal that maybe doesn't measure up to your own guidelines and standards and all that. People are, and I, again, I'm talking to a lot of investors And, you know, when you look around and see how many syndications are being done and what is being bought by these people, you kind of start to wonder. And then I think it's beginning to be reinforced by some of the passive investors and that, you know, maybe we're being a little bit aggressive with our underwriting at this point. So Sam and I are kind of different. You know, I don't ever want to be a syndication factory. I don't think that's the life I want for myself. I think I make more money, but keep my quality of life if I just do one or two really good deals. And I just wait and I have other interests and I do other things. And so does Sam. So, you know, I don't need somebody sitting here underwriting a billion deals. The brokers know what I want. And the things that kind of look like they could be something that's interesting to us, I get the email. And that's that. So it's like systematizing the business at that level. I just don't see myself doing it, period, because I'm not out to do two syndications per month. That's just not what I want to do. All right. So you guys take a more deliberate approach to it, uh, much more fine combing. You know, I actually resonate with that a lot. Like um, the one thing I saw when I wanted to go into the syndication business full time was that that conflict of interest that if I really wanted to make, you know, a living off of syndication itself, I'd have to continually do these deals regardless of whether or not maybe they were the best deals. And that's right. And um, yeah, that's so right. I 100% agree with what you just said. Well, and, and, I, I heard uh, not a lot of technologies being used over there, Ben. We've got we to change that. I got to get you into the this century. <laughs> okay. I'm open to suggestions. Which technology would you recommend? I don't know, man. You're the syndicator. I'm a CPA. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> See, I would say I would say we're using more technology than a lot of other syndicators by using the IMS platform. Ben and I do all of our underwriting in Google Sheets, so we can edit it real time. We're not sending files back and forth to each other. Um, we save all the files on an online drive. And dude, now people are gonna be breaking into my Gmail account, dude. <laughs> Nobody can hack Google, man. <laughs> No, but uh, we've had a lot of positive comments about the IMS. You know, a lot of people that have invested in other deals, you know, they're commenting, this is really a slick platform. It's not cheap either. Uh, And it doesn't make really sense for one deal. But obviously, you know, you spread it around between deals, it starts making sense. But 
I would say Sam's right. We are at least as technology dependent, if not more, than the majority of people. Very good. Now, on the IMS, I just want to ask a quick question about that. The live data is obviously a really cool thing. Is there a certain point, though, where live data is not a good thing? Yeah. And it's not live, live, live. I'm not going to let the numbers out before we've had a chance to review them, normalize them, line item them uh, to make sure everything is right. And this is another thing. Sam is working with IMS and the accounting department at the PM right now to set up that whole system. Guys, we closed on this thing two weeks ago. So we're, we, you know, we're still getting up to, up to speed on this a little bit. That's awesome that you guys do use technology the way you do use it. And um, like I said before, I, I think there's definitely, there's definitely that conflict of interest. So you don't want to systematize it to the point where you're just doing deals just for the sake of doing deals and so forth. So, Hey guys, just to let you know, I just received an email from our property manager that the total cost for flooring is going to be a buck 21 per square foot, which includes the labor, Samuel. That is a fantastic news. Not that I guess else our fifty that we have budgeted. I'm glad that we could share that live. <laughs> fantastic. But this is a life of a syndicator, you know. So if anybody need, yeah, there you go. The whole anybody morning needs. has been emailed, boom, 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 yeah. boom, just back and forth, and it turns out we're about three hundred dollars under on this, and about one hundred seventy-five over on that, and. It's it's just like it's well, if our if our listeners didn't get anything from this podcast, they did get a capex data point. So <laughs> there you go, a buck twenty one for flooring, labor, and materials. There you go per square foot. Very good. All right. So before we wrap up, Sam, I want to ask you specifically, what do you look for as a CPA when you're analyzing a deal? And do you feel like it kind of gives you an, like? Do you feel like the CPA gives you an edge over somebody else, particularly Ben? <laughs> yeah, definitely. So earlier when Ben said he has to have a story and then go to the numbers, being around all the numbers and especially being in uh, the financial side of accounting, I'm able to just look at the numbers and come up with a story from them. So I definitely have a, an advantage there by just looking at them and understanding what's happening at, a, at the business level by looking at the numbers. I have, I have to say that Sam is unique. He's very unique. And I don't mind sharing that with people, but this approach is really flawed for most people. The fact that he's able to look at the numbers and extrapolate a story that's actually going to stick is very, very seldom. It almost never happens because until you've been around tenants and units to see how they interact over a period of decade and to see what breaks, how often, why, what you need to do with CapEx, until you've been around long enough to see how all of that unfolds, that's the story. So when we're buying, when we're looking at these numbers, it doesn't really matter to us where this is right now. What matters to us is how it's going to perform for us and what we can do to improve that future performance. Well, the story is in the delta between where it is today and where we think it's going to be tomorrow. That delta is very difficult to visualize without having had hands-on experience and knowing the dynamics of how all of this unfolds. And I, I say all of this, the story, how the story unfolds. So to be able to look at the numbers that are in place, or even suggestions by the broker, and to be able to place logic and reason to that is very unique, not having done it. And he's able to do that, and he's not always right, 
and I am sometimes having to come down on him and <laughs> much more conservative in some ways because I've seen it go very badly and I don't want it going badly for me and my investors. But I, I'm like a financial that. wizard. Huh? A financial CPA underwriter wizard. Very good. <laughs> well, call it what you want. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a great thing. We've, we've, uh, we're a great team because we come at it from different standpoints. And interestingly enough, you know, however many pages, 10, 20 pages in the underwriting, they look different. His underwriting doesn't look like mine because we see things in our mind's eye unfolding differently. And that's what underwriting is, is, is boiling that to the numbers, the level of the numbers, right? And, yeah. and we see it differently, but we're able to marry it and produces good results. Yeah, I'm sure the, the different approaches, yeah, like you said, you come together, you, you can... Uh, have have awesome discussion points and really kind of dig into something and figure out together totally. where you think that's going to end up. Totally. Absolutely. So if our listeners uh, wanted to contact you, you know, what would be the best way to do that? Um, I have a website. It's called justaskbenwhy.com. You can contact me through an email on that website and Samuel. My company is Whitehaven Capital. And so my website is whitehavencapital.com and my email address is at sam at whitehavencapital.com. Awesome. Awesome. And do you guys have anything special coming up in the near future that would be beneficial to potentially our listeners? We do. We do. I, you mentioned briefly that you attended an event, a workshop I put up in um, Jersey. I did a, a whole day's worth of underwriting. Sam and I, you know, for me, guys, this is five years, culmination of five years of work to really understand how this works. Maybe because I'm not a CPA, it took me longer, but it, it is. It's been a long road. But uh, I, I like to teach and I like to share what I know with people. So Sam and I are putting together Phoenix Syndication Workshop, and we want to do this annually. And we're going to do this in January. Sam, what's the date? January 26th and 27th. So uh, I'm going to have a uh, page on my website, just as benwhy.com, shortly for folks to be able to register and uh, come join us. It will be a little on the pricey side because the kind of information, the kind of line item by line item that we are disclosing is not $200 information. If you want that, go to somebody else's event. We are really going to show up to teach how you can go from point A to point Z, find a deal, underwrite a deal, syndicate the deal, the entire thing. Well, that's awesome. I would have to say that uh, from the event that I went to that Ben did, I was very, very impressed and very happy with the content that uh, that Ben provided. And I, I learned a lot. So uh, I would definitely say check that out if you guys are out there trying to syndicate deals and wouldn't want to uh, wouldn't want to miss it. So Ben and Sam, very excited that you came on today and uh, hope to do it again sometime in the future. And is there any closing thoughts you'd want to leave before we go ahead and wrap it up? Thanks for having us, guys. And let's definitely get you on board for uh, doing our K-1s so I can get that off my back. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. No, I think that you need to go yeah. through the pain of... <laughs> before you that, was <laughs> that was smooth. That was smooth. Yeah. You know, uh, it, it's, a, it's a real, real pleasure to be with you guys. It's, um, you know, the, the parting thought is just, you know, for, for people looking to get to the next level, don't give up. It took me a very long time of buying, you know, a duplex, a fourplex, a sixplex, a 10 unit, and 
growing that way and figure it out. But don't give up. But having said that, it's not the most efficient way to do it the way I did it. That was going to be my advice is you don't have to go through those heartaches. You can skip to the fast lane. Yes. You have to be careful. You have to know what to do. Even if all you are doing is investing money as a limited partner, you have to understand how to break down those offerings, how to really understand projections, to challenge the assumptions. You have to know how to do it. But it's worthwhile because there's a lot of money being made in apartments. So it's worthwhile. Absolutely. So thanks you guys again for coming on and look forward to your event in January. And thanks again. Thanks guys. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.